After 16 successful years in the 80s and 90s as the artistic director of the Seattle Repertory Theater, today's guest, while hardly a New York novice, set out on a freelance career that quickly cemented his role as one of the very top U.S. stage directors, with such prestigious recent credits as Dinner with Friends, Proof, Intimate Apparel, Third, Rabbit Hole, The Homecoming, and Accent on Youth, the upcoming commercial transfers of Time Stands Still and The Merchant of Venice, and this spring, the premiere of David Lindsay Abair's new play, Good People. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I always enjoy an opportunity to speak with Director Daniel Sullivan. Hi, Dan. Hi. Thanks for having me. So this is suddenly turned into a very busy fall for you. Yes, I didn't expect that. Um, when was the decision made for Time Stands Still, which had run at Manhattan Theatre Club very successfully earlier in the year, when was the decision made to bring it back to Broadway? That was made uh, uh, quite a while ago, um, last year actually, uh, fairly soon after we uh, closed it at MTC. Uh, so that, that's been in the cards for a while and I assumed that would be my fall. Uh, but then Merchant of Venice uh, uh, decided to move also and they're moving at approximately the same time. So, so you're going to be going back and be forth between crunch, yeah. two theaters. Yes. Now, as we're speaking, um, you're going to shortly go into rehearsal on Time Stands Still mm-hmm. and you're still – Casting for Merchant of Venice. In both cases, these shows, you're required to put, in the case of Times and Still, one new actor mm-hmm. in. Yes. There, there were possibly multiple cast changes yes. for, for Merchant. Once you've had shows open and be successful, what's it like to suddenly go back and rethink them both for different theaters and with some different people. I think in the case of Time Stands Still, there won't be a lot of rethinking because it's basically uh, a proscenium space very similar to the the space we were in originally. And the cast is for the most part intact. Christina Ricci is coming in to take over for the role that Alicia Silverstone uh, played. Um, but it, it's going to be relatively easy compared to Merchant. Uh, with, with, with one question about mm-hmm. Christina Ricci, she does not have an extensive stage background, if, if any, that I'm aware of. So there's going to be a certain amount of work just getting her to the same place as the other actors. I, that's possible, though. I have to say that uh, Christina came in and auditioned and she was really quite wonderful and she showed she had the chops then and there. So I, I, it's not as though we have to find some way of pulling up a, a film actor uh, in, into a sort of stage energy. She, she comes with that. So I think it will be relatively easy. It will be different in terms of interpretation clearly because she's a very different person uh, than Alicia is. Uh, so that will be that will be an interesting new dynamic in the play, I believe. Right. And how much time will you spend on on putting her in? How much time will you get in the weeks, rehearsal room? Yeah. A couple of weeks, and then a week of tech. Right. Yeah. And then Merchant, as we say, you're recasting. How much of the show do you have to put? Would you say of the cast? You have to put almost, in new almost half. Wow. Yeah, a lot. Uh, there, there are a lot of people had previous commitments and couldn't make the move to begin with. Uh, some people got other work, uh, um, so it's it's uh, it's fairly extensive, 
And there's also an extensive redo of the set because, of course, that was an 80-foot uh, circle that we played on in, in, in Central Park. And so we're going to have to cut that in half basically. So that in itself will will require a good deal of restaging. And when you say restaging, again, will it require rethinking? Will you really go back – Will it, is it a transfer or is it almost getting to do the show again? In, in this case, we'll do a lot of it again because, yeah. of course, uh, uh, since you're outside in the park, you use that park setting. There is certainly no park in the Broadhurst Theater. So we have to uh, create a completely different world. Uh, the, the idea uh, physically for the show will stay the same. Well, Al Pacino is fairly well known for – continuing explorations of roles. Mm-hmm. He's, he's even filmed some of that. Yeah. Um, do you have a – have you had discussions with him about whether there are things he'd like to look at differently um, or do you just – that, that, just that happens rather organically. I mm-hmm. mean uh, Al is in this because he called me uh, when he found out we were doing it in the park and said that he wanted to continue to work on the role of Shylock. Hmm. Uh, so that's really what he's up to and certainly the more he runs it, the more new things he finds. I don't think he's necessarily looking to work in one particular area of the role. It's just sort of what happens on a nightly basis for mm-hmm. him. And then inevitably if there are different actors with whom he interacts. Exactly. As you say. Exactly. That will, that will change the dynamic there also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Taking on Merchant of Venice, Mm -hmm. um, it's always a challenging play in this era and indeed there are some people who believe the play should never be produced again. Mm -hmm. What's what's your stand since obviously you believe it should be but what's what's your reaction or response to people who say this is ultimately a very anti-Semitic play? Well, it certainly comes out of uh, a pervasive anti-Semitic consciousness. Certainly Shakespeare did not escape that in his time. Um, But his genius uh, um, was such that he could not create an entirely anti-Semitic character that that, uh, whether by plan or simply by instinct, uh, um, Shylock uh, grew into – very three-dimensional and and ultimately very moving character. Uh, so that's sort of what I'm interested in in the play and interested in exploring. The, the questions as to whether the play should be produced or not, I'll leave to others. <laughs> At least to Oscar Eustace. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it was interesting to me that you virtually got a review on the editorial pages of the New York Times. Maureen Dowd does not often comment at length on theater. Um, And I was just wondering about your reaction to to having the play looked at in that particular venue Mm -hmm. because it's it's not where we see theater commentary. Yeah. I think, you know, clearly uh, Maureen Dowd was – Moved by what she saw, um, I I think that certainly the things that she's talking about and that other critics were talking about that particular production is not that unusual when it comes to the history of of twentieth and twenty first century productions of Merchant of Venice. 
um, I, I don't think we play it as a comedy anymore. When was the last time it was played as a comedy? Uh, and I think that the the pain, uh, the, the painful anti-Semitism in the play that wreaks havoc on everyone is something that the directors have been playing with for a long time. I'm certainly not the first to, to engage with that. Hmm. Let's jump back. Uh, you were raised in San Mateo, California. Yes. And I was struck to find out that you actually began performing by studying ballet. Yeah, my father, for some reason, put me in a ballet school, Madame Zaisova's Ballet Center in San Mateo, California. At what age? At the age of seven. Gosh. Uh, and uh, he, he was never actually able to explain that to me. I guess I jumped around a lot as a kid. And so I stayed there on and off for until I was 15 or 16 years old. Huh. Um, and then when I went to college, I danced in the musicals. That but did was you, before we get off to college musicals, yeah. did you like it? I liked the discipline of it. I did like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I liked uh, – I didn't particularly like the uh, the adagio classes because I was very small and a lot of the women were very large. So lifting them around the room was not easy. <laughs> <laughs> I dropped quite a few in my time. Uh, but I did like uh, – um, I remember I always had to drag myself to the classes. But when I got into them, I, I did enjoy that and mm-hmm. and and my parents constantly took me to, to see ballet when it came to San Francisco. So I got very interested in the, in the sort of the narrative pieces, not, not necessarily the, the classic pieces, but I love the narrative romantic pieces. So when you went off to San Francisco State College, were you thinking about any kind of performing career or was it just no. about going to college? No, just about going to college. I was in the English department. And tried to find something to do with my nights, so I, I danced in the musicals. And ultimately, you did not get a theater degree. You got an English degree. I got both. I got oh. an English and theater degree. Finally, mm-hmm. uh, I spent so much time in the theater department. I. But again, we know. should say that your your time in theater in college, all performing. Uh, no, I actually uh, I directed oh, I directed the the music the 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 yearly uh, I think they were called campus capers, <laughs> and uh, Paul Gemignani actually and I uh, worked together and uh, he wrote the music and I I uh, directed them. Huh. Yeah. So when you got so it's an interesting trajectory when you got out of school. How quickly did you begin your association with the San Francisco Actors Workshop? Was that almost immediate? It was actually while I was in college because uh, uh, Herb Blau and Jules Irving both taught at San Francisco State. So uh, I – and Jules was one of my teachers. So I actually worked at the workshop while I was still in college. And what were you doing at the workshop? Were you acting? I was acting. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, I was part of that company and – and then in 65, that company was invited to Lincoln Center. Well, we should explain for those who don't know that it's not as simple as being invited to Lincoln Center. The Lincoln Center was newly built. The Vivian right. Beaumont was a brand new theater and the company was invited to be the resident company then renamed as the Repertory Theater of Lincoln Center right. under under Jules Irving and, and Herbert Blau right. initially and then – 
fairly quickly it just became Jules Irving's project. That's right. right? I think I think Herb lasted just a year, year maybe two. So a great introduction to New York. But again, in terms of at least what we found, how much were you acting and and when did they give you the opportunity to start directing? Um, because we were you know, on, on weekly salaries, uh, there came a time in uh, late 60s, early 70s, I guess 1970 I think it was, that um, I, I, uh, since I wasn't in a show, I was just hanging around collecting my weekly salary of I think it was $125 a week, very, very large for that time. And uh, – there was a play of uh, Pete Gurney's, A.R. Gurney's, his first play, Scenes from American Life, that was in what was then called the Forum Theater. It's now the Mitzi Newhouse. And uh, the director of that production was fired after two weeks. And they, they fired him. They didn't know what they were going to do. And Jewel said to me, you think you know what you're doing. Why don't you go down there and direct that play? <laughs> 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 and... Uh, so I did, uh, um, and it felt like a good fit right away. Hmm. Why? What was it that made it such a good fit for you? Do you think? Um, I, I part of it had to do with I, you know, the, a lot of the actors I knew because I'd worked with them: Martha Henry, Chris Walken, Herb Foster, uh, uh, Jimmy Broderick. It was a wonderful cast of actors. And it was very easy to simply step in. I wasn't, you know, I, I I worked in a very organic way with them from the very beginning, uh, and it was also a kind of problem solving that had to happen right away. We threw out the set. We we started. Doug Schmidt had done the set, and we put in a new set. Uh, uh, Dave Frischberg uh, uh, came in and did the. Uh, the music for us and uh, uh, sat at the piano and played nightly hmm. for the show. Uh, so it was ju- – and, and Pete was great. He just sort of stayed out of the way <laughs> let me do what I wanted. If I recall the play correctly, not unlike Dining Room, it's more of a fragmentary play. Yes. It's not a through-line narrative. That's right. So That's in right. that sense, you were doing scene work, and it was a question of how the scenes would come together. That's right. You, you say that Pete stayed out of the way, but did you, as a young director coming in as a replacement, did you have the opportunity to affect the structure of the piece? I think so. Uh, I mean, I, I, I made a structure for it, just sort of out of movements, uh, and uh, you know, we found a way to sort of create uh, a sort of company-oriented feel to it so the changes would happen very quickly and uh, that it it, it, exi- it was a very bare stage that sort of ex- the, the bodies existing in space were most of it. So in, in some way, it was sort of my dance training sort of helped the thing it's always an issue when you have in you know in either of the Lincoln Center theaters when you have what are essentially three quarter round or, or mm-hmm. thrust stages you you need to keep people moving simply so that people don't always have That's their right. backs to members of the That's audience right. so That's that right. 
And, and you have to keep the moving and you have to also make that invisible to an audience because you could you, – I, I see a lot of things in the thrust where you just see people arbitrarily moving around in order to move around. So all those moves have to appear to be organic even though technically they're absolutely necessary. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure quite where this falls in relation to scenes from American life but I, I see that at one point you were the assistant or associate director – of the original Broadway production of Hair? I was a stage manager. I was brought in uh, by a friend who was stage managing uh, the Broadway show. Uh, It was about, I think, three or four months after the opening uh, on Broadway. So I came in and uh, it was sort of exceptional training because it was a a, – difficult group to deal with on a nightly basis. Well, I would imagine that as a stage manager who's looking for structure and regularity and this was not a show that that lent itself to that in its original production. Uh, I I found that on a nightly basis, at least four or five uh, tribe members uh, wouldn't show up. So, for one reason or another. Uh, So, at 15 minutes... Uh, at the 50-minute call, as a stage manager, you would have to sort of reorganize. You'd have to know what everybody did in the show and then you would have to parcel out various roles of which you know each actor played many. Uh, and uh, it, it was always a, a nightmare on a nightly level because it was never the same people missing. You were just constantly uh, reorganizing the, the evening. Yet, of course, four months in to its original Broadway run, it was still quite a phenomenon. Yes, it was. And it was still very much, you know, Horgan had sort of put it together with a lot of people uh, who were not the usual Broadway gypsy. There were people that, you know, they had had auditions on St. Mark's Place. There were a lot of people who simply were not used to that world and didn't have the discipline also that that world requires. So uh, not showing up, they would sometimes just not feel like coming in. But it was certainly, again, for somebody who was beginning to direct more, you 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 were certainly doing more than the average stage oh, manager. Oh, for sure. You were yes. redirecting the show on a nightly basis. That's right. Unbelievable. Now, the relationship with the repertory of Theater of Lincoln Center continued. You mm-hmm. You continued to act. You began doing more directing. And at what point was the transition from Jules Irving to Ellis Rapp in there? Because you crossed over. You stayed – Well, Jules brought Ellis in. Mm -hmm. So – and and many of the actors that Ellis worked with. So a lot of people from the APA Phoenix uh, came into it. So – and that was a – I thought a fairly healthy time. I was – Sad when uh, when Jules left because I thought things were just starting to take shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ellis's uh, uh, work was wonderful. The people he brought in were were excellent, and they fit very well with a lot of the people who had been brought in by Jules uh, originally. Uh, people like Phil Bosco also, who, who was a regular part of that company. Uh, so it was just starting to work, I felt. They uh, just didn't take the time they needed, I think, to put together a, 
a company. But it was sort of an evolution. As you say, Ellis had come into yes. the company. So it wasn't that suddenly – it's not like nowadays there's a new artistic director. There's a new ethos. That's right. So, That's right. So the same people. And it's interesting that – And John Hirsch also yep. who had come down from Canada uh, um, brought some wonderful people also. Um, it's interesting that in um, in the midst of all of this, you appeared in a production of Merchants of Venice. I did. <laughs> As Lancelot yes. Gabo, the yes, comic relief, exactly. Um, exactly. so to speak. I mean, again, extraordinary people. Sidney Walker was, Sydney the, was, uh, was the Shylock. Sidney, whom I've always thought of as mostly a West Coast actor. Um, not as familiar on, yes. on the East Coast, yes. I think. But Chris Walken was in that, Rosemary yes, right. Harris. Um, was that – your only prior experience working with Merchant before you did this one? With, it was the only time I, I was in it, but I had the, the very first play I saw in New York was the George C. Scott Merchant of Venice, which was the very first production at the Delacorte, huh. uh, the Scott and Colleen Dewhurst. And that had a huge effect on me. And then um, later I saw the Olivier production. Hmm. Uh, so uh, – for a play that supposedly doesn't get produced very much, that play certainly has had an effect on me over the years. Hmm. So at what point did either you say it's time for me to move on or was it when the repertory theater ended at Lincoln Center that you were forced to move on? Yes, absolutely. And Herb uh, – You were forced. <laughs> I, basically forced. Uh, Herb Blau – uh, was running California Institute of the Arts and he hired me out there. Uh, so I went out there for a brief period of time, uh, spent time in L.A. But I be- when I was there, I started my gypsy career of going around to various regional theaters and directing. But it was only a matter of a few years before you first had an association with Seattle Rep. Mm-hmm. 1977, you were engaged right. to do That's a production right. of The Royal Family, right. which if what I read is correct, you quit? I did. <laughs> I've never done that before, but I absolutely did. It was just an awful circumstance. It was so, It was not one of the first jobs that I had, but, but uh, it was an unusual circumstance where I just went out and I didn't cast it. I just went out to direct it and um, had to replace – the leading character in that play three times during the rehearsal period. Well, just before we go on, was Seattle still a true repertory company no. at this point? Okay, no, so it, it was wasn't. Not. It wasn't that there was a group of actors that you were handed. No, not at all. No, so, I was still handed this group, but it, the artistic director had had basically cast the show, hmm. and uh, I just went out. And, Who was the uh, AD at the time? Uh, um, Oh, God. I'm trying to remember. Duncan Ross. Okay. So you had to replace the same role three times? Yes. And at what point did you say – And finally when we got got to the tech – now the the third Fanny Cavendish that I had, uh, I can't go actually into the – what actually happened there, but uh, she left. And so I started a tech rehearsal – uh, with Gail Sondergaard as Fanny Cavendish and she, she, uh, she came down the stairs uh, for her entrance and she said, where's my chaise? 
I said, there's no chaise. And she said, yes, there is. There's a chaise here. <laughs> you know what I thought? Um, so I went up to Bill Ross's uh, uh, office and I said, Bill, you're – you're now in charge of uh, this play. I cannot do. I can't work on it for another second. Well, what's amazing after after having left that production and left those poor people in the lurch, uh, I ended up as the artistic director of that theater. Well, what's amazing is, is only two years later you were invited back as resident yes. director. Yes. And then two years after that became the right. artistic director. So as resident director, what mm-hmm. was your role? Were you just on staff and you would do a few shows a year? No, no the John Hirsch was – there was not sort of an official artistic director because John was the consulting artistic director. He was still working in Canada and he would bas- – he, he and I would basically put together the seasons. I was sort of the one – really in residence and John would simply come in. So we, we did that for a couple of years. And then they said enough yeah. of the guy yeah. flying in from Canada. Right. And John didn't want to do it anymore. He had, he had. So what was the experience? You'd, you'd obviously – you'd been part of a repertory company that operated in a very particular way truly as right. a company. Um, the regional theater movement was still relatively new. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there were tons of models of exactly how to be an artistic director. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the experience of suddenly having the administrative and institutional responsibilities beyond simply directing yeah. plays? Yeah. Um, well, you know, luckily I got to practice before I did it. Uh, and I think you know, certainly being around Lincoln Center for a good long time uh, and then being able to be the resident director without actually having the full responsibility. I sort of learned it was sort of on-the-job training, but uh, I didn't have the, you know, the awful responsibility uh, uh, until uh, I became the artistic director. So that was pretty easy. I think that the, the, the difficulty for me over time was that I sort of wanted to return that theater to a company-oriented theater. And uh, over time, we got a core company of 12 to 14 actors uh, but it was never large enough. I mean, finally, it became very clear that if you really wanted a company, you had to have at least 20 to 25 hmm. actors. Why do you say that? Well, because otherwise, you know, the old guy is always going to play the same old guy. You, you, you don't have the sort of casting options that I think you have to have to make it interesting for the actors and to make it interesting for the audience. Hmm. Uh, so... But it was clearly financially not feasible. Uh, it was not possible to have a company that large. Even with not having the full company, you say there was this core group. Were these actors out of the Seattle area or were these people you had to lure S- up to? Some of them uh, were uh, from the Seattle area. I'd say about half and half. There were actors like Biff McGuire. Uh, who I'd worked with uh, over many years, who moved up there with his wife, Jeannie, and they were both members of the company. Um, so it, it, was a, it was a good mix. But ultimately, when I talked about uh, working at Lincoln Center and making 125 a week and not having anything to do, so I became a director. Well, n- nobody 
uh, on the board could understand that actually if the actor wasn't in a show, why are you paying that actor? <laughs> and, well, and know, at that point, you know, so many of the regional theaters had been founded around the idea of resident companies right. and even by the early 80s, most of them had fallen by the wayside. Right. Bob Brustein still had a core company right. Um, right. that he'd taken from Yale up to ART. Certainly, Adrian Hall still had the core right. group at Trinity. Right. But but you were swimming against the tide. That's oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I I I tried to do rep one season. Actually, did plays in rep. And I remember uh, halfway through it, the actor, one, an actor came to me sort of uh, to speak for the company to say, you know, we don't – you just get started with one role and you have to do another one. <laughs> no. So the actors didn't even – because usually when I talk about actors, they talk about what, how, what great fun it is to do but, but it But it just sort of is not in the blood of the American actor. You know, it was – it became sort of uh, uh, difficult to – for them to to – think of uh, logistically. Given the opportunity to decide what a season was going to be, were there plays that you'd always said, I want to do these and had the freedom to do it? Or was it discovery and figuring out what Pretty worked? much discovery, I think. So, you know, there are plays that I love. and uh, uh, But uh, – and most seasons would be built off a single play. That is just something that's in your head that you feel uh, uh, is right for the time. And basically everything else would sort of spur off of that particular idea. And were there – were there – particular productions that you were very proud of in that period outside of the ones that moved, things sure. that stayed yeah. only in Seattle? Um, I did a production of Caucasian Chalk Circle that I thought was pretty wonderful and is something that I would love to do again actually. Hmm. Um, I thought that, that was – Why the uh, desire to go back to it? Because I just think the play works wonderfully and is – still extraordinarily important, just the tale itself and how well it's told. Um, and, you know, that and Galileo are two of Brecht's plays that I think we don't see very often and they should be something. Those, those are plays that we should see all the time. But the challenge being, for especially, you know, institutional companies, they're big. Yes. Oh, and absolutely. Yes. So, you know, yeah. It's a limiting factor. That's right. Absolutely. Now, I just alluded to the fact of the plays that moved. Mm-hmm. At what point – I mean it, it would seem that that I'm not Rappaport began something yes. in that it was done at Seattle first and it ultimately ended up in New York mm-hmm. on Broadway and subsequent productions all over the place. Did that come to Seattle – simply as a play that you chose to produce or was there already any commercial attachment to it? There wasn't um, – there certainly weren't – there were people commercially who were interested in the play. Um, but that play was actually supposed to have been directed by Ellis Rab, And uh, two weeks – and Jason Robards was going to be in it. Hmm. And two weeks before we started rehearsing, 
Jason decided that he couldn't do it because of the pot smoking sequence in it. And Jason was in AA and he felt the pot smoking sequence was somehow saying that pot was a good thing and he couldn't say that on a stage. So he decided he didn't want to do it and then Ellis bowed out. So we were basically stuck and as most things have happened in my life, uh, this was just another one of those accidents where it was like, you know, get in there, kid, and direct it. Hmm. So uh, that's how that happened. But it was basically just for us there. We didn't have any idea that it was going to be that successful. Did Judd Hirsch and Cleavon Little do it for you out there? Um, um, Judd came into it when we did it here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Having a show transfer from mm-hmm. Seattle, it's not the same as doing a show in New Haven and everybody rides the train up to right. check it out. Right. What was the process of that show moving? Uh, well, that, that uh, um, I mean, we certainly took, we, we certainly used the set. As a matter of fact, that thing practically fell apart but, I mean, after about a four. finding it. I yes, mean, just right. you know, yeah. coming and seeing and saying, okay, this should go. Right. That was actually uh, uh, Jim Walsh, the producer Jim Walsh, who was interested in the play from the beginning. It was just basically all Jim. He, hmm. he did it all. He, was, he came out, saw it there, and, uh, but he, he was interested in it from having read it. But in most cases, the distance factor was helpful to us because uh, when Wendy, for instance, wanted to get uh, out of New York and work on the on her play, she came to us out in, in Seattle uh, uh, to get away from all of her friends. Well, and we should say yeah. this is in the days before the internet and That's right. chat exactly. rooms and everything exactly. else. So if you went to Seattle, unless somebody physically got on a plane or somebody in fact even found – a copy of the local newspaper. That's right. Or if you know, if the Variety Stringer right. said something. That was it. Really, yeah, exactly. Variety. That, that was it. That was it. So, so for you coming to New York, having that kind of success, did that raise your profile in New York? You hadn't worked in New York in about ten years mm-hmm. at the point at which you did this. Suddenly, here you are as an artistic director. You have a successful play on Broadway. Um, did you start to receive overtures about doing commercial work? Pretty much everything. Uh, uh, I, I really didn't do work that wasn't related to Seattle during that time. Hmm. Uh, almost everything was either came out, was developed. In some cases, we didn't do like with Wendy's work. We didn't do the actual productions there. We did we workshopped them, brought them to New York, and then brought them back to Seattle. But uh, almost everything else uh, that I did came out of uh, the Seattle experience, as opposed to in, you know independent producers here in New York. And to point out for people, because my summary at the beginning of this discussion was all from shows that you've done since you left. Mm -hmm. In this period, you were doing things like the original productions of The Heidi Chronicles, The Substance of Fire, Conversations with My Father, Sisters Rosenzweig. Mm -hmm. I mean, all pieces that people here in New York came came to know very well. I want to use that to ask you, you've, you've 
had sustained relationships with a number of playwrights, right. and I can't talk about all of them, but I'd, I'd like quick takes from you mm-hmm. on on some of those playwrights. Sure. So first of all, Herb Gardner. Um, Herb became my dear friend, so uh, that you know that's sort of inseparable from from the plays for me. Uh, um, he, you know, he, he was such a, a New York personality, and I was such a sort of, you know, Catholic kid from San Francisco. So there wasn't there wasn't a lot that we had in common, but we we became very close. Uh, and Herb was uh, a very exacting writer, and you know, getting him to change a line was <laughs> extraordinarily difficult. Let alone cut an hour out of a play, which is what we had to do with uh, "I'm Not Rappaport." We hmm. actually, I actually sat on the phone with the man for 24 hours and cut that play. 24 hours. Wow. Uh, my wife brought me. Where in the production? Where in the, the life of the play was that? While it was in Seattle, this was, yeah, it New was. York? It was before he came out to Seattle. This was. I didn't know him very well, but clearly the play was too long, and it, it was. It was as was that phone call, <laughs> and it was an unbelievable negotiation. Just to wrench, you know, line after line away from her, uh, but it, it was always that way because he was so terribly invested in virtually everything in the play. Hmm. Wendy Wasserstein. Uh, you know, Wendy, it was a dream. Uh, very shy and uh, and she didn't, you know, she didn't like to tell me no. Uh, she, she uh, if, if I thought something uh, should change and she didn't, she would just sort of nod and not say anything and just not change it. <laughs> but she wouldn't, she would never argue with me. <laughs> uh, Donald Margulies. Uh, and, you know, Donald's a, Extremely elegant uh, writer uh, knows what he wants, and uh, you know he. We, we've had a good sort of develop, developmental uh, process, particularly on Time Stand Still, which he, he was, you know, very open to changes. But he takes it away for a long time, thinks about it, ruminates, uh, and goes back very carefully in, in terms of constructing uh, a play. Charlene Woodard. Uh, well, Charlene is is a, a live wire. Uh, you know, it it it, co- it all comes out of her very improvisationally. She's a great storyteller, and basically everything she has, all her solo pieces are basically plays that she has talked into existence. I mean, she just starts telling a story and it becomes a play. Hmm. John Robin Bates. Uh, uh, Robbie is is. Uh, a wonderfully sort of scattered human being uh, uh, who, you know, uh, um, manages to organize his life in his writing. And uh, it's, it's, it's both art and therapy for Robbie, I think, to, to, to get all of the, of the, uh, sort of extrapolated experiences finally tucked into a play. Mm-hmm. And David Lindsay Bear? Um, I, I, you know, I have no idea where 
David and the plays intersect. He's he is such a straight ahead guy, you know, and the plays are so wonderfully strange, uh, um, um, extraordinarily inventive. Uh, um, but David always seems like the sort of perennial student, uh, not a student of mine, uh, just the st- a student of life, uh, um, uh, always sort of innocently, uh, in, 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 genuinely innocently responding to the world. You mentioned students, so it's a great segue. During your tenure at Seattle, you had at least three, by my count, associate artistic directors mm-hmm. or of varying titles. Yes. Robert Egan. Doug Hughes, mm-hmm. David Saint, who's yes. now running George Street. Um, were they your students? Were you conscious of bringing them along? Um, actually, um, Bob Egan t- was an adjunct teacher at the University of Washington, and he used to bring his students to, um, the fir- uh, to our dress rehearsals. And I re- remember sitting in the theater after a show and listening to him talk to his students. And I thought, I like that mind. And um, so I invited him to come on board, having no sense of his ability to direct or, or you know, help to run a, a company just based upon uh, uh, listening to him talk to his students. And Doug Hughes... Uh, whose work I had not seen happened was just doing a tour and stopped by Seattle and and we had a nice long conversation and I hired Doug in the same way without any real knowledge uh, of whether he could direct or not. I just felt if he could convince me, he could probably convince an actor and uh, so that's how that happened. David, David had come out and done a production of M. Butterfly for us. So I, and it was a beautiful production. And I thought, uh, um, but he's he's the only one of those three whose work I'd actually seen before I heard. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1997, mm-hmm. when you made the decision to step away from Seattle, mm-hmm. what drove the decision? Um. Part of it had to do with the failure to create a company. That that had been my dream and I just couldn't do it. Uh, um, I couldn't grow it to the size I felt it needed to be. And so I thought, well, maybe I should just work for myself for a while, Mm -hmm. you know. And that's uh, so that I, I wasn't... Uh, so I could just sort of get rid of that responsibility and uh, see what would happen if I just took things as they came. Well, what's amazing in terms of what we've pulled together of the work you've done is it's been almost entirely New York work, it seems. Did you set out to come to New York or did you just say, I'm a freelance director again and the New York work is what happened. Pretty, pretty much. I mean, I wanted to come to New York because all my friends are here, uh, and um, so this was going to be my base no matter what. But I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, did a play at, uh, did light up the sky at 
at Hartford. That was the first job I did when I got out here. Uh, so I assumed that I would sort of re-enter the gypsy life. Mm-hmm. You know? In the work that you've done here, it's also been an interesting mix of commercial work and work for the not-for-profits because you've done a number of shows for MTC, you've you've worked with Roundabout. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what's driven it? Have have the not-for-profits come to you and said, "We'd like you to do something. What would you yes. like to do?" Yes, that's exactly what it is. You know. So yeah. in that sense, you still had some of the freedom that an artistic director has because right. it wasn't about here's the play. Would you do this? That's right. Exactly. Uh, but also, uh, you know, over the years in Seattle, I also had relationships with. Uh, Lynn and Todd and certainly Andre uh, um, because even while I was there, uh, I had done a couple of shows uh, for uh, playwrights when Andre was at Playwrights. Uh, Yeah, I mean really so many of these credits are – originated at least at these theaters and then went on on to other places. So what was the – when was the first fully commercial – Producer comes to you and says, "I want to do this show." Um, what was what was the first opportunity for you to do that? You know, I don't really know. I mean, I'm, I'm looking through the list it, here know. quickly. I What's see Retreat from Moscow and Retreat from Moscow is one. Yes, you know, yes, that was that was definitely a, a, a commercial production. Uh, um, but was Homecoming mm-hmm. was a commercial. with the commercial productions, right? Do you having as somebody who had such great desire for a company mm-hmm. and who'd worked almost entirely in the not-for-profit theater, was there a different process for you as a director working in the commercial model? Um, not, not really. Uh, um, I think there's sort of you know when you're working in the commercial theater, there's a little less negotiation. Uh, you, you know, it's it's having been an artistic director. It's certainly very easy for any uh, uh, nonprofit theater to guilt trip me when I'm working there. Well, the not for profits can guilt trip you because <laughs> yes. you know it. But yes. you know, suddenly you've gone. You'd had many years of being the guy. I mean, yes, right. you had a yes. board of directors. To there were people over you, right. whether it was Lynn or Andre or Todd, right. who may be more seen as peers. Right. But a commercial producer, it's about let's you know, yeah, let's absolutely. make the make the money, absolutely. And, but that's you know, I, I stay as far away from that as I possibly can. But I don't think that the pressures commercially are any different in New York, at least, are any different than they are for nonprofit theaters. That is, you know, the the notes that you are given by a commercial producer. Uh, um, uh, you don't get more notes than you would from Lynn Meadow or Todd or any other artistic director in town. So this, the the pressure is the same. I think you're still you're still working for somebody. Let's put it that way. There has been, and certainly Merchant is one of them. You've you've had the opportunity to do several Shakespeare's, both commercially mm-hmm. and not for profit. Had you done a lot of Shakespeare back at Seattle yourself? Yes, I I had and mm-hmm. and um, 
sometimes, unfortunately, more uh, uh, more often than I probably should have. But <laughs> what makes you say that? Well, I I would you know the, what, one of the problems with Shakespeare is that you you do a production and. You never get it right, so you do it again. Uh, you know, I'm I'm someone who did you know Two Gentlemen of Verona three times. Who's a, who's ever done that? You know, you should really only do it. Sixteen years at Seattle? No, no, I would do it. I did at the Old Globe. I did it at South Coast Repertory. So I would keep sort of working on it. Uh, um, uh, so, but yeah, I did several Shakespeare's. I read a comment that. Talking about doing Shakespeare here in New York, that people aren't necessarily as open to different interpretations of Shakespeare as as they may have been when you were doing that work regionally. Can, can you explain that a little more? Uh, uh, did I? I said this. I, I did. I did see that. I think I, must, I was being. I was being careful. I think you yes, may have right. been referring specifically to critics. Right. right. It, uh, it's possible. I don't know. I don't know that. Critics are necessarily impatient with it. I think there there are you know I think uh, uh, directors are always uh, um, are sort of um, stalking horses. I think for criticism when it comes to Shakespeare, because basically you have to you have to create a world. The world is not necessarily there on the page, right? And you we have know to the create text, it. and right. if, even if you mess with the text, right. they know who messed exactly. with it. Exactly, exactly. But the, you know, the moment one interprets, one is uh, is open to criticism, and you can't do Shakespeare without interpreting it. Hmm. You know, that's. Uh, and you know, particularly when it's something like Merchant of Venice, uh, uh, that in order to make the evening whole, uh, you have to slant the production in a certain way. That you know, and that that's a large gesture <laughs> that is noticed, by, hmm. uh, and people either approve it or violently disapprove it. Well, if I have it right, your first Shakespeare in New York was the Julius Caesar with Denzel Washington. First, since leaving Seattle. Uh, since leaving Seattle, yes. Right. Um, and that's an interesting play yeah. to have a star in because yes. the play itself doesn't actually give huge chunks of the play. That's right. To to a single actor. That's right. Does did that? create an imbalance when you have someone who everyone's coming to see and they suddenly realize that it's a different actor who gives the funeral the already. famous speeches <laughs> yes, right well in, in some ways although you know i i actually uh, I, I had talked with denzel about doing the play and he and uh, he wanted to know what role and i said brutus and he called me back a couple of weeks later and said what about mark anthony and i said well Mark Anthony's a, a good role, but you know he sort of disappears in the play, and it's really Brutus's. He kind of it, comes in, and gives right. this great speech, right. and right. that's it. Yeah, uh, I said, but it's the introspection of Brutus that really takes the play. And uh, but yes, I think it is. It is one of those plays that, well, you know, Shylock uh, as a, a large uh, an impression as he makes. Is really only in four scenes. Hmm. You know the 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 trial scene is a, a work of huge genius, but still, it's you know he's he's in about a quarter of the play. Well, the vast majority of people don't even realize that the Merchant of Venice is not referring That's to right. Shylock. <laughs> That's right. Um. That's right. 
But that issue of star power, mm-hmm. and you've certainly had your opportunity to have really well-known people in some mm-hmm. of the productions you've done, whether it's Laura Linney, now in Time mm-hmm. Stands Still, or when you did uh, The Twelfth Night in the Park with Anne Hathaway. Yeah, right. I mean, these yeah. are, you know, in some cases, people are coming to see the star, that's not right. to see the show. Right. Is that something as a director that you have to take into account? Well, I, I, you know, with Shakespeare, what you hope is they'll come to see the, the star and then be taken by the Shakespeare. You know that that that, and I think that was certainly the case with Merchant, and I think uh, um, Twelfth Night also. I think people uh, were delighted that number one, they understood Shakespeare just that, uh, just on that most primitive level that it was something that they could actually follow. Hmm. So it wasn't about being in the presence of the star anymore. Hmm. You know. Interesting. Now, we, as we've been talking about Shakespeare, I've, I've skipped over one production. I wanted to ask you about Stuff Happens, mm-hmm. which was a play very much of its moment and certainly highly political mm-hmm. view largely of American politics um, over over the war written by an English playwright. Mm-hmm. And surely the way it was received when it was done in England was not necessarily the way it was received or perceived mm-hmm. when it was done here. How much – you had not done the English production. No. How much work did you have the opportunity to do with David Hare bringing the American perspective – to a British play about American politics, uh, you know, I think probably my focus was the was on uh, Colin Powell, and I told David that right at the beginning when they asked me to do it. I said I felt that that story uh, was the most interesting story in the play, uh, and. And Powell's dilemma was the was the story that we could most clearly identify with, and uh, so uh, he, David did work there. I think somewhat reluctantly because he, he was worried that I was going to Americanize uh, the the play and that I was going to play down the 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 British story and play up the American story and in fact in strengthening Powell and that story uh, um, that did happen to some uh, extent but I felt also it was also right in that finally it was an American story. Hmm. Uh, uh, as the war was uh, generated by this country. Uh, so that uh, – I think David liked what happened, but he he was certainly uh, pushed a little, I think, to, to go there. Which version got published? Um, the published version is the, is the English version. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah. if people chose to do it – and do you think people will do that piece or was it simply – was it truly agitprop theater of its time? 
there, I I don't know any you know any more than I know whether people whether if you were to do the Heidi Chronicles now would it work you know because it's certainly about its time the story is still kind of fascinating so hmm. if you if you uh, the further you remove it from its period perhaps the more interesting it will become because uh, um, you know and there are probably parts of the play. Uh, the, the sort of single uh, uh, um, monologues um, uh, from various people that might sound a little like agitprop in 10 or 15 years, you know, where hmm. uh, um, um, when you're really almost hearing directly from David. In talking about your freelance career, which seems to go from play to play to play. I don't know how much downtime you've had. But um, I've left out the fact that you did take a year when Lynn Meadow was on a sabbatical yes. from Manhattan Theatre Club and you went in as um, – I don't know whether I don't remember the title they gave you. Were you the acting artistic director for the season? Something like that. Yes. What was it like, roughly ten years after leaving Seattle, right. to go back into an institution for a year, but but with all of somebody else's people? Yes, uh, I mean it was easy on the when it comes to the people. It was very easy because I had worked with all these people for a long time and enjoyed their company, so that part of it was easy. Uh, but it was something of a nightmare uh, of just uh, having to go back, you know, show up for fundraising events again. You know, what am I doing this for? And just simply being responsible for a season uh, um, and then sort of not at the same time. What you do know? you mean? But, well, you know, it, because seasons don't – seasons spill over from season to season. So the planning stages are never concurrent necessarily with when you're there. So that that's part of the question is – the season you were there, yes, was that a season that you had planned, or were you overseeing? No, what no I was planned? over. And, but also, even that is slightly confused because Lynn and I, of course, collaborated on putting the season together that was happening while I was there, and then the the following season, Lynn was never not in the process, even mm. though she was sort of gone for them. But the whole thing happened because Lynn had for years been complaining about never having had a sabbatical. And I thought, well, my guy has been 36 years and you've never taken a year off. This she is had crazy. Maternity, she had one year maternity leave, which was the year I worked oh, there. Is that, is that right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's hardly a sabbatical. Yeah, right. Well, anyway, I, I, I complained to her for so long about it that when she finally turned and said, well, then would you, you know, I thought, oh, no, oh, my God, <laughs> please don't do it to me. Well, we've already talked about your exceedingly busy, if not concurrently busy, fall. You've got good people coming up in the spring. Mm -hmm. As somebody who does a lot of new plays, it's a hard question to ask. But do you know what's on down the line beyond that? Is there anything set for you? Um, no. Um, I'm, I'm – you know, I teach out at the University of Washington. So I, I, I do three – Months out of every year, I, I'm in I'm in Champaign Urbana, uh, so that's uh, you know I w once I finish uh, Good People, I'll be out uh, in Urbana, and that'll be it. Hmm. Well, I mean, for those people who who follow websites that track when they spot 
Broadway people on the street, you'll be easily caught running between theaters uh, right. for the next couple of months. Right. And uh, just before that running begins, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been fun. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and on follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.